Hello all, and thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Focal Point. Today, we are kindly joined by Paul Quetricasas, who is the CEO and co-founder of Aqua Partners technology-focused boutique based in London. So if, would you mind giving us a quick introduction of yourself and tell us a bit more about career and your journey and how you've ended up at the place you are today? Sure. Thanks, Vardeen. Good to be here with you today. So yes, I'm Paul Quetricasas. I founded Aqua Partners in 2010, and we are a investment banking firm that is focused on helping tech companies grow through capital raisings and offering M&A advice, as well as helping the larger established incumbent companies that are not technology companies, but do understand what's happening in the world. And they understand they need to become technology companies. And we help them understand that process and primarily find the right tech companies to partner with or invest in and acquire. I started my career back in, I guess it was 1989-90. So I got my MBA at Columbia in New York in 1990, but I started working for GE Capital, Leverage Buyout Group in that summer, and then a few years after graduation. I came to London towards the end of 1991 to join a Bain Spin out called Arkwright. And that was really the beginning of the journey. Arkwright did a lot of strategic work, also had a entrepreneurial outfit. So they created Arkwright Capital, which was the unit I joined, which was advising their corporate management consulting clients on deals. And that's where I met my future partner, John Allen, who had been in First Boston before Arkwright. And we set up our own firm in 1993 called Arc Associates. And it was really on the back of what we saw and what many people called the information superhighway back then. Goldman called it the communicopia. It was the beginning of mobile telephony. Uh, it was the beginning of deregulation and privatization of telecoms in Europe. So it was quite an exciting time. And I don't even think we realized what would actually happen. I don't think we realized how big the explosion of data and communications and technology would be, and not just in Europe, but around the world. But in Europe, we saw, of course, the deregulation and privatization. We saw 3G happen, very large takeovers and the emergence of the internet and the rest of the story. So it's been an exciting ride. And I, I'll just finish up this introduction by saying, as exciting as it has been, and it certainly was towards the you know in the mid to late 90s. I'm more excited now than ever because this fourth industrial revolution that we've entered is just unbelievable in terms of the exponential pace, I should say, at which it is you know, effectively eating every industry. Every industry around the world is being deeply affected by technology of all forms. So it's a very exciting time at the moment, I'd say. What do you see as the future of technology in the UK specifically? That's a good and important question. And I don't think anyone has an answer, a little bit like predicting the stock market. Everybody's got an opinion, but you wouldn't re want to rely on just one. So my opinion is that we will probably continue to see more of the same, which is more and more young people wanting to become entrepreneurs, to take risk in technology as technology takes over, frankly, in every industry. And so my advice to young people today who want to go into finance is be careful. Ensure that you understand finance, understand as much as you need to, but be aware finance is becoming more of subsidiary value set or in terms of value add than creating the solutions and creating the products, which wasn't quite the case 20, 30 years ago. I mean, for young people, and certainly you could do that in a different context 20, 30 years ago, but today there are just so many possibilities. But one of the challenges for the UK is that it's more competitive than ever. Someone asked me about this and what we see is the big change. And I said, we still have 
in our mind in the UK that these big brands such as BP and Vodafone and BT and Centrica, the established companies are still where source of pride should be and where a lot of value is. And there are many valuable aspects and assets of those companies. But if you look at the ultimate arbiter, the stock market, if you look at the share prices of those companies over not just the last year, year and a half, but go back five years, go back 10 years, it's a pretty poor track record. And in the last five years in particular, they're almost a straight line down in many of these cases. And I think that concerns me the most is that while in this country, in the UK, there's still so much attention paid to the largest established companies, well, they're actually declining in value. And as these companies decline in value, market value, that is, they will be more challenged to attract not just investors, not just the traditional institutional investors who are measured by performance every quarter, but I think they're going to be challenged to attract the top talent. So to me, technology in the UK is about people. It's about training, it's about education, it's about gaining skills, not just technical skills, but skills about application of those skills and execution, emotional intelligence, how to lead. People will determine to a large degree how successful the UK is in technology because technology companies are people companies. You know, they really are. Technology tends to be software or integrated circuits, which are designed by people that don't require huge CapEx unless it's a foundry. So much of technology today doesn't require huge capital expenditures. It doesn't require a lot of iron and steel. We'll get to the point, even with batteries, we'll have solid state batteries and not the lithium ion ones. And so if the country can get its head around that, that its future value is really around intellectual property, which can be either patented methodologies and patented techniques, as well as software coding solutions that are created with all the advanced technologies, whether it's 3D printing or AI or virtual reality, to understand that this is really about people and their imagination and applying their imagination, the more successful the country will be. It really, in my mind, just comes down to that. And I really do think that if we look at things as a cause and effect relationship, that the cause of that element of people being so valuable starts in the schools at a young age, all the way through to university and beyond. And I think that's where the UK has been strong traditionally, globally, certainly in the West. And I would double down on that. I would certainly make the UK the most attractive place to get an education of any type in the world, ideally, from early grade school all the way through university and beyond, because that's where people gain the skills, gain the talents, gain the analytical thinking, the critical thinking that's so important, the intellectual curiosity that'll be more important than ever. We're going to have more robots and robo-advisors and software robots running most companies. I mean, I can tell you in the next five or 10 years, there will be few people in companies. They'll be run and designed by the most able people. And so why not get the training that relates to that? which is how do we design companies to give greater value to stakeholders? And I think it comes down to intellectual curiosity more than anything, really wanting to know, wanting to understand, wanting to learn. There's so much content out there and so much to learn. Well, even learning how to curate all the content that's out there to make sure that you are learning the right things. I think that's the key more than anything else. It's the hardest thing to do and it's a bit soft and uh, intangible, but I really think that's the key. Building on the theme of technology, what do you think are current trends in technology that people on speed enough about that you think are potentially trends that could become really big in the future? So that's an important question. And the answer is there are a lot of them. And the one that I am most moved by today is the food industry. And the reason for that is it is a massive global industry, multi, multi-trillion dollars. There are millions of farms around the world that are still farming things the old way. There are certainly in the US still probably most of the produce that people eat is laced with GMO and glyphosate and other chemicals or herbicides, pesticides. The entire value chain in food 
is being disrupted. From the very beginning, where the seeds are planted or where the animals, frankly, are husbanded and killed, all the way through to the consumer who either goes to a store to buy food or a restaurant or it's delivered to them. That's all being disrupted by technology and at light speed. And the pandemic has only turbocharged that even further. So one of the areas of food that people perhaps are not as aware of that I think is the essence of the revolution that looks like the horse and cart back in 1903 going to the automobile in 1913 is animal protein and how the vast majority of animal protein today comes from effectively killing a cow or a pig or a sheep or a fish. And there are developments underway at the moment to grow the animal protein that we eat, the cells in laboratories using the cell medium without having to kill the animal and to do it in a way that's not using fetal bovine serum. So doing it in a very humane way. That is incredibly exciting. And I believe it's it's one of the most exciting elements of all technology in the world today, as well as vertical farms, for example, which are growing in number and in type, mainly in the West, but all over the world. Why is that exciting? All kinds of economic reasons. I mean, both the new use of animal protein and vertical farms use far less water, land, soil. They are not producing methane gas. I think methane gas from cattle farming produces about 20% of the carbon on the planet. We can save the planet from its climate problems by moving to plant-based protein, the new animal protein alternatives and vertical farms, while we're also, and this is the big one that people are now talking about, solving the healthcare problems. So probably in the UK, the NHS is among the top problems for all sorts of reasons. In the US, it's similar. I think it's 20 to 25% of GDP in the US is on healthcare. Why do I say that? Because there's more and more research being published today that shows there's a direct relationship to the purity of the food that a human eats with whether or not they contract disease. This includes cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and the like. And those just to mention, three areas are probably represent over 50% of the reasons why healthcare costs are so high, especially in the hospital. Now, if we can connect the dots here over the next 10 to 15 years and start to produce pure food in the lab or in vertical farms, for example, that tastes great. By the way, I was on a call the last week with a CEO and founder of one of the world's largest vertical farm companies. And he told me, my kids, my teenagers eat this stuff, you know, the lettuce and the other vegetables we produce, they eat it out of the packet like it's popcorn. They love it. And it's absolutely pure. If we can get to the point where young people in particular are eating pure vegetables because they taste so good, because they're so pure, instead of eating chocolate and drinking Diet Coke and having the diet they do with burgers and the like, then we're going to start to see direct relationship with healthcare costs reducing. So I'm extremely excited by what technology today, advanced technology is bringing to these industries to go faster and faster at an exponential pace because they're solving a lot of problems in the world at one time. And they're not limited to one country. This can be expanded very rapidly. We're working with one company that's developed cultured fish, a form of aquaculture that is, I think, getting close to FDA approval within 12 months. And they will be able to have bioreactors placed locally around the world that will be close to the distribution point, whether it's a supermarket or to a local you know, regional convenience market that will allow people to eat pure, fresh fish, ideally at a, a lower cost than they, they do today, especially when it comes to fish like bluefin tuna. But you know, to summarize this, it's not just the problems around the world that are being solved, but it's even within the industry. If you think about what the consumer cares about most, it's taste. So if you can have food that just tastes amazing, it's about sustainability because consumers want to eat sustainable food and also healthy food, which doesn't have sugar, doesn't have the gluten, you know, purely organic. That's 
what people want, and then they want it fast. Now that we've had this pandemic and everything's delivered to us, we want everything to be delivered to us and even faster. And by the way, that means we're going to be having drones within two or three years. We already have them, and some of them are improved in some territories. We'll have drones deliver our food. There's a robot firm, I think it's called Starship, that is delivering food. They had their millionth delivery a few days ago at campuses in the U.S. And its little robot goes around with a hot meal. Every part of the value chain is being disrupted and using robotics, using computer vision. It'll be using AR and all types of AI to collect more and more data to be more precise in the calculations. It's a very, very exciting time. Moving on from technology, you obviously run your own firm. So what do you find most exciting about running your own firm? What have been the kind of challenges that you faced and what have you learned the most from? It's interesting and applies to most, if not all entrepreneurs. But what I like about it is that it matches my DNA, which I think is an entrepreneurial DNA, which is to want to achieve something, to want to do it essentially on your own, to not have to rely uh, necessarily on someone else, even though, of course, we're relying on everyone. But it's a different kind of relying. You have to rely on yourself more than anything. And I think it comes to growth. Why are we on this planet? Think about that. A lot of things a lot of people do. And I, I think most people probably wonder at some point why they're here. And I think we're being tested. I think we're here to grow. I think we're here to explore everything that life has to offer. And to me personally, and it's not true for everyone, it's to be stretched, to be challenged. I think being an entrepreneur allows one to experience the full gamut of emotions and the ups, the downs, the lows, the highs, the thrill of victory, but also the agony of defeat, to have some sympathy with the boxers who say you're going to get hit 10 or 20 times in a match, but you got to get right back up. So there's an element of proving it, running the marathon and, and actually doing it, climbing a mountain. I think entrepreneurship has a lot in common with all of those things. And I think that's ultimately why I became an entrepreneur and why I continue to be an entrepreneur is that it really stretches me as a human being to be my best. And you know, you're going to fail. You can't be an entrepreneur without failing, either in a big way or in a small way. And in a small way, we're probably failing a little bit every day. But it's how we learn. It's how we grow as humans, how I think we become better people. I'd like to think that anyway. Certainly it's not true of everyone, but it's more about that than I think it is to try and make money and become rich. I just think that's with any entrepreneur who's genuine in their mission, their vision, a byproduct that's either going to happen or it won't. Of course, in a business, if you're not growing, you're dying. So I think that's the best description. And the challenge is probably more than any is that just when things are going really, really well, you may be blindsided by something you don't expect. And that's why people say you should have a plan B. But then there's another argument, which is don't have a plan B, because even if it's there in your subconscious, then you're not going to be all in on plan A. You get knocked down. You can't just go to a plan B. You got to get back up and keep going and try it again or pivot. You don't want to do the same thing over and over again, of course, but it's that process of continual learning and renewal. Finally, for our listeners, many of whom are undergrads eager to enter the world of finance, and what bit of advice do you have for them as they seek to break into the industry? You stress the importance of intellectual curiosity. Now, how would you say to foster and spark that intellectual curiosity. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a call from my nephew a few days ago, just coincidentally. He was saying he was thinking about getting into investment banking. He had interviewed for an M&A position, so giving him some guidance on that. And I think the answer is, and what I've learned is that some people, some students just love finance and they just love it for all sorts of reasons. And that's a great thing if they know that they love it. And if they love doing Excel spreadsheets and learning how to do DCF models and LBO models, that's great. There isn't anything wrong with that at all. I would say that try to understand if you really do love it and why you do. And that's not because this is supposedly a sexy industry, investment banking or M&A or equity capital markets or whatever it might be, but that it's something that strikes your DNA as just being something you enjoy. And I say that because technology is going to start to, well, it already is disrupting the industry in general, but it's going to start to disintermediate a lot of the things that even M&A bankers do. It won't really disrupt much of the final deal doing, the negotiation, the, the relationship building. I think people, 
people. It's always about people. I don't think that's going away until we are well past the singularity. So the advice is to be aware that technology is the most important thing driving the world today in every sense, much more than oil, whereas there was a time where we were an entirely oil-driven economy. That's already changed. And so that's the baseline. If you'd asked this question 30, 40 years ago, and I guess if you'd watched the movie The Graduate, where Dustin Hoffman is told to go into plastics, well, you certainly wouldn't go into plastics today. The world has completely changed. But today you would go into technology. So that's always my first answer is, is there any area of technology, even in fintech depends on the specifics, but if there's any area of technology you can go into, if not, or if that's not your first love and finance is your first love, then my advice is to absolutely start out being intellectually curious and reading a lot. So read first, do your homework, read about everything, about as much as you can, gain perspective, talk to people, learn how to talk with people, develop your emotional intelligence. That's just as important as your technical capability, if not a lot more important. And I can tell you our firm, and I know most of our peers are outsourcing most of our analytical work today to either India or, or Portugal or some other countries where they have analysts who are very well trained, very professional, and they know how to crunch numbers. They know how to do research. They know how to do what most young analysts in the UK or France or New York or wherever you are can do. And that'll just grow. So if you are thinking of entering this field as, as a junior professional, you know, as an intern and then an analyst and you become an associate, you've got to realize that your value over time, even at day after day, week after week, your value will grow in direct proportion to your ability to communicate, to be brave, to have courage, to speak up, to ask questions and to be engaged, be engaged in conversation, to not just listen, listen well and take notes, but also ask questions and be genuine and try to ask good questions. Try to ask questions that aren't directly related to the client or the deal or to the project, but about politics, about what's going on in a different part of the world. Ask questions about interest rates. Ask questions about GDP, about the virus. Ask as many questions and be engaged, be involved and stand out. That is how you do stand out is by showing intellectual curiosity, asking questions. I mean, to be an interesting person, you have to be interested. All of those things are true. I mean, I was told these things years and years and years ago and they're all true and they're the most important things. If you look at the people who are really successful, whether it's in banking and finance or whether it's in running a large corporate or, or in technology companies, they're almost always very engaged individuals who are interested in everything and who are happy to express their opinion about things. And that is so important. It's as important as the education itself. You can get training today on the internet. If you're truly committed, you can go watch YouTube videos about how to run Excel models and DCF models. You don't even have to read. You can just watch the videos and practice yourself. Smart people can do that. And by the way, you don't have to be in the UK to do that. You don't have to be in Europe or New York. You could be anywhere and do that. And you probably don't even have to learn English or know English. So those skills are important. They're the fundamentals and you want to get as strong as you can on them. And yes, they will get better with experience. But at the same time of equal importance are all these elements which are summarized in leadership. Be a leader of yourself. Lead yourself forward. Lead others around you. Become a leader of your peers by being interested in things and interested in people and reading as much as you can instead of spending so much time on social media and as much as good content there is today on TV, you got to be careful that you can discipline yourself between reading and watching this great content or spending time on social media because the guys and the girls who are going to win without any question aren't just the smartest ones. They're the ones who are well-rounded in perspective and well-rounded in judgment, well-rounded in how they think, well-rounded in how they ask questions with a sense of humor. Incredibly important. That may not be so important if you're going to code software or if you're a data scientist. That's a bit of a different thing. Or if you become a molecular biologist, there are different skills. But in finance, where more and more elements of the entire financial services industry are being automated through robotics, more and more every day will be automated through blockchain and digital assets and digital asset management. The key differentiator that 
will not be disintermediated away by technology are people skills and using the best robot, the best thing in the world, which is on top of your head, your brain, and not just the technical, logical element of your brain, but the full capacity of the brain, the right and the left, the emotional component of that, the human component. It's incredibly, incredibly important. Thank you so much for this insightful conversation. And I'm certain that our listeners will find this episode really rewarding to listen to. Thanks a lot for letting us have you on Focal Point. All the best. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, Fardeen.